have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Panelist.Pod. Sean Ram Chodhan here with you, joined by Yash Joshi and Rohan Naranjan on yet another NBA podcast. We are back looking at these Eastern and Western Conference standings for the most part and got some trade rumors to get to um, as we do progress throughout this pod. But um, as always, you know, we tend to start off with the Eastern Conference. So might as well get to that. A lot more to talk about in the West. But in the Eastern Conference, the Bulls still reign supreme as the top seed, but they have lost four straight. They're five and five in their last 10. A uh, huge part of that could have also been the loss of Zach Levine off late. Um, he does have a knee injury, hopefully not too significant down the stretch, but he is expected to miss, I believe, a couple of weeks. Um, shouldn't be too bad for him. We've seen the Miami Heat kind of surge up to the top over here, the number two seed in the Eastern Conference, seven and three in their last 10. Then they're followed by the Nets, the Cavs, the Bucks, the Sixers, respectively. And the Nets and the Bucks are two teams to keep an eye on as well. They're four and six in their last 10. Of course, Kevin Durant, I think, is the elephant in the room, per se, in the Eastern Conference to be out for an extended period of time. And Kyrie's inability to play at home games could start plummeting the Nets just a tad bit. But that's that's what I I guess that's my intro for the most part in the Eastern Conference. Um, I guess we'll start off with the Miami Heat. I think that they're a team that I really want to talk about. Um, you know, they're seven and three in their last ten. Kind of surging up to the job. Jimmy Butler just coming off a triple-double. Looked great. And I think the most important addition to this team off late is the return of Bam Adebayo. Yeah, that's what I was going to add first and foremost, that the Heat have actually played without their star center, Bam Adebayo, their second best player for a majority of this season. And now that he's starting to come back and getting incorporated back into the team, he's going to start tied for the first place in the Eastern Conference with the Chicago Bulls. I think they're like five percentage points behind the Bulls for that first place. And now with the Bulls having Zach Levine out, um, Derek Jones Jr. Derek Jones Jr. is also out as well. So the Bulls are going to face some kind of hard waters um, for the next few weeks. And the Heat have, with the Kevin Durant injury, the Bulls injuries, they have a great chance to kind of, you know, put some distance between them and the few other top teams in the East. I know, like, we talk about this conference every single week, and it seems like the, the standings are just difference just because they're so damn close for like the top six teams but the way the injuries are the way the heat are starting to become a little bit more healthy I think it does play into their favor and that by the time Kevin Durant comes back by the time Zach Levine come back I would like to see the Miami Heat really pull together some wins and go on a run maybe have like a two three game lead in the Eastern Conference and that would really you know help me believe in them as a true title contender because as of right now you know they've been Playing very well, don't get me wrong, but I want to see how Bam Adebayo does because if they want to be true title contenders, he's going to have to play a huge part in this team. Yeah, I think the Heat and the Sixers right now are the biggest surging teams uh, in the East. And obviously, the return of Bam Adebayo is going to be huge for this team going down the stretch. I think Duncan Robinson might move back into the starting lineup with the return of Bam. It's uh, you know important to note that Adebayo has... 185 assists on Robinson three-pointers, and that's 26 more than any other player um, has on a single teammate's three-pointer. So the success between Duncan Robinson is very uh, highly linked to Bam's return, obviously. So I think that he's going to get it more into a groove. I think he might see the starting line more, but I just want to give a quick shout-out to, you know, someone that our listeners and, you know, myself included, like, haven't really followed 
uh, in the Heat, who is Omar Yutsevin. He's an undrafted rookie who wasn't in the rotation for the first 20 games, I believe. Um, but he started the last 10. He's been a pretty crucial piece to the Heat surging up. I think he's averaged 13 points, 13 rebounds in the last 10 games. Um, he had a high of 22 and 11 against the Sixers on Saturday. Uh, so I think that, you know, he's been crucial to this team going forward. And I think like a lot of our listeners wouldn't know who he was, uh, you know, if you, if you mentioned the Heat, because he's just been such a crucial part for them uh, this last, I think ever since the new year, honestly. So I don't know what's going to happen to his spot if Duncan Robinson decides to come back into the lineup with the addition of Bam Adebayo, but just wanted to give a quick shout out to their, to him because he's been crucial to their run this last uh, week and a half. Well, now thanks to you, I guess our listeners should probably Google him and look at those numbers a tad bit more um, down the stretch. But um, something that I do want to, you know, take note of over here, like what Yash was saying about Miami kind of, I guess, putting these wins down and or getting win- some wins down in the stretch up leading up to the all-star break uh, over here in their next 15 games. Like I genuinely believe this team should not be losing more than two of those games. Um, honestly, like I, I'm like, I'm just eyeballing. I'm just going to spitball over here. You've got the Blazers, the Hawks, the Lakers, the Knicks, the Clippers, the Raptors, the Celtics, the Raptors, again, Spurs, Hornets, Wizards, Pelicans, Nets. And of course, Brooklyn is going to be without Kevin Durant, um, down the stretch over here. So once again, like, you know, Miami looks like they can really go up, take control of the number one seed in the Eastern conference. Do I believe that they will be title contenders? Yeah, I mean, like, it would be a fool to say no, that, you know, they're the number one seed. But I feel that the way that Miami's going to get dangerous is because they're going to start winning games. You know, teams like Miami, I feel that they just need to get wins and they'll believe in themselves. And the confidence that this team has, once again, like, I've said this so many times, Jimmy Butler is a very controversial player for a lot of people because they're like, yeah, he's not the biggest stack guy. He's not your always going to be your top scorer every night but I feel the mentality and the influence that he has on this team that's what's going to take them to the next level and that's I think the what's really carried them through the bubble at least despite what Rohan had to say about bubble frauds of course we'll get to the Lakers who I believe were the true bubble frauds but um, you know Miami is definitely I want to say a dark horse for the title and it sounds weird to say because they're a top three seed but because there is you know a Giannis and Embiid a, you know, Kevin Durant, when he does come back nice and healthy, you know, that there, why there's a reason why, you know, Miami, I think is going to be troublesome down the stretch. I, I, I completely agree with what you, you just said. And I wanted to like shout out Rohan for bringing up Yurtsevin's name because he has been absolutely crucial for the Heat. He actually had a stretch of 14 straight games. We average or not even average, but 14 straight games of double digit rebounds where he averaged 14 and 12 for the Heat. So that's a big reason why they're in or tied for first place with Bam Adebayo out. So like Sham said, it's, it's really weird to consider the number one team in the East a, t- a dark horse for the contender for the championship, but I, I think you have to say that just because this year's, this year's title feels like it's wide open for quite literally anyone in the East or even in the West if you want to consider the Suns, the Warriors, maybe even the Lakers if you want to go that far, but there's just so many teams that really have a decent enough chance to win the title that even if the Heat have like 
you know, three, four games above everyone else in the Eastern Conference. You know that there's a Kevin Durant, James Harden, Kyrie Irving. You know how good the Bulls have been, the defending champions, the Bucks, and then now whatever the 76ers decide to do. So I'm excited to see what the Heat do. But again, the Eastern Conference is going to be a dogfight, and I think it's going to just stay that way until the very last day of the season. Yeah, no, most certainly. And I don't, I wouldn't see, you know, why not, you know, down the stretch, how that's just how the Eastern Conference has always been jam packed. But, you know, moving on to a team that's right below the Brooklyn Nets, of course, you know, we've been stressing that Kevin Durant injury. And, you know, looking at their schedule, I do not like it. If I'm a Nets fan, you know, you got the Wizards, the Spurs, the Timberwolves, who could go nuclear any night sometimes that's honestly a toss-up to me quite frankly then you got the lakers should hopefully be a win for the nets unless the lakers do of course change their season around we'll see how that goes but then you got the nuggets the warriors and the suns then the kings the jazz the nuggets again um in between so it's looking very very tough for brooklyn because these western conference teams have you know they've just been known to be stronger than Eastern conference teams down the stretch, but the teams that I just named, they all are top six in the Western conference. So if, you know, if the nets are going to drop, I believe that it's going to be at this time of the season and rightfully so because they don't have their best player in Kevin Durant. So I could start seeing, you know, the Cavs, the bucks and the Sixers start to kind of trickle on upwards and the nets could drop, I believe as low as five until Kevin Durant comes back. Uh, this Kate, yeah, now nah, this Katie injury is pretty big. Uh, obviously sprained MCL, so I think it's four to six weeks. I don't think we see him uh, before the All Star break at this point. And it's just you know kind of interesting to see that Durant, Harden, and Irving. Uh, it's been I think over a year since James Harden ret- uh, came to the Nets, and they've only played sixteen out of one hundred thirteen games together possible. So that's about fourteen percent, which is not what you want to see as a Nets fan. You know, you've just never really had a chance for your big three to gel, and this Durant injury just puts another like fork in the road for them. It's just another obstacle for them to overcome. They have forty games left this season, and Durant is expected to miss about seventeen, um, and fifteen of their twenty-three games after the All Star break are at home. So usually you would think that'd be a good team, a good good uh, reason for a team. But for the Nets, it's not that case, right? Because we know about Kyrie Irving's vaccination status, and he's only going to be playing on the road. So that is a little bit concerning. However, their games before the All-Star break, 17 of 22 are on the road. So they're hoping they can find a little bit of a groove with Kyrie down the stretch here before the All-Star break and hoping, uh, you know, he can just contribute more because so far the Nets have scored 100 points per 100 possessions in Kyrie's 96 minutes on the floor since he rejoined the team this season. So that is a little bit... Uh, of uplifting news for the Nets, though this Durant injury obviously is going to derail them for a bit. I do agree with Sean. I think that they could very well slip to the five with the way that, you know, the Sixers and the Heat are playing. And I think Milwaukee is going to bounce back too before the break, even though they have lost, I believe, five of seven this last week, uh, week or so. So I think it's very possible for the Nets to fall to, you know, four or five spot, uh, you know, when the All-Star break comes around. So I want to play devil's advocate just a little bit here and like kind of find a silver lining in this Kevin Durant injury. So firstly, Kevin Durant, since his Achilles last year and this year has been arguably the best player in the world. You can say that he's been one, two or three, but honestly, none of the others. And when he comes back from this injury that he has, the knee injury, I think he's going to be just as good, if not even better, right? It may take him a few games to get readjusted back onto the nets. But when the playoffs come around, I have no... I have no hesitation that Kevin Durant will be the KD that we know. But like you both said, at the end of this kind of stretch without KD, if the Nets do fall to kind of five or six, 
I actually think that's good for them. So hear me out because Kyrie can only play in road games in the playoffs. If you're a five or six seed, that means in the playoffs, a game seven potentially would be on the road, which means that you would get your second or third best player versus if you were a top four seed, game seven would be at home. And I know this is a very like nuanced answer to the question, but a game seven is like a season ender or you move on to the next round and having Kyrie on the road versus not having him at home is just such a big deal. So I know that as a Nets fan, I might be worried that KD's not here for the like next whatever few weeks. But if you do end up as like the five, six seed, as long as you avoid the play-in, I still think the Nets fully healthy would be favored over any other team in the East. And especially if they're like road, road team advantage, quote unquote, because they get Kyrie Irving would be just so much more devastating for them. No, one I think I think that that's it's honestly a blessing in disguise for the Nets to kind of drop a little bit but I guess Nets fans just need to pray that the Knicks don't win every single game from here on out and overtake them because Kyrie of course cannot play um hypothetically if they were to go to the Nets which is completely completely impossible for that to happen um due to the market size and everything like that but coming down the stretch over here you know the Milwaukee Bucks they're also four and six in the last ten I'm kind of eyeballing it. I'm not going to look too much into it because I think that the Bucks just, you know, they've had some games here and they're like, you know, they went out, they beat the Warriors completely, of course, without Draymond. I know what you guys are going to tell me over there. Um, but, you know, they came back, then they lose to the Raptors, and then they just lost to the Hawks in an Eastern Conference Finals rematch, of course, in the regular season. But now they got the Grizzlies, the Bulls, the Kings, the Cavs, the, Net- the Knicks, the Nuggets, the Wizards. A lot of great teams coming up um, that Milwaukee is going to take. And I think that they just need to stay at around 0.500 and they can move up to maybe the fourth, possibly even the third spot because we're predicting the Nets to kind of come down over there. So I'm not reading way too much into that, but the Sixers is a team that I want to get to over here, eight and two in the last 10. I think that's worth talking about, you know, what are they going to do with the trade deadline? And then that's part, that's the part that is, the big question mark for Philly um, because right now, yeah, they're, they are a top five seed in my opinion in the East, even though the numbers say that they're the sixth seed, but it's kind of like, what are you going to do at the trade deadline? That's going to push you forward. And right now we have new developments saying that Ben Simmons is now open to sitting out the entire season. So if they don't move him at Feb 10th, it's kind of like you've just wasted a complete roster, but this year could be just another, you know, throwaway season for a Philly fan. So it's kind of like, what are you going to do to make yourself go from like the five, six spot to being, you know, a top four, top three seed? Yeah, I think that's kind of been the problem for Philly these last you know, three, four years. I think even when, in the Brett Bowen era, they were always that, you know, fringe contender, I want to say, and that they would always fizzle out come the first or second round of the playoffs. And they don't want that to happen this year, you know, obviously because Embiid is playing phenomenal. He's averaging, I think, 30, close to 32 points in the in uh, since Christmas, and they've won nine of their last 11 games. Obviously, Tobias Harris has been struggling. Uh, I think he did play a little bit better against Miami on Saturday, but I think he had another bad game yesterday against the Wizards. So he's been kind of struggling. So I just wanted to bring that up. Like, is there a chance that you know Tobias Harris could be on the move during the trade deadline? Obviously, we know that Ben Simmons talks have been going on for you know close to a year, close to close to like over half a year now, and. Uh, I think one of the trades I saw earlier today was that the Pistons offered Jeremy Grant, Kelly Olynyk, Sadiq Bay, 
someone else and a first round pick, I believe, for for Ben Simmons. Kelly, I, I think that was the yeah Kelly on there. I oh, think I, he mentioned. I, I, him, yeah, I, I said Kelly on Yeah, so, so I, no, that that was the offer though. So yes. those those three and a first round pick for Ben Simmons, and I, you know, Daryl Morey wasn't pleased by the offer apparently, but I think that that's just been the kind of stalemate between Morey and the rest of the league's GMs. Like he is just at this crossroads that he wants so much for Ben Simmons. He just values him so much as a high piece that he's just refusing to, you know, even take minimum value. But I think at this point, you don't accept that. But on the day of the trade deadline, I think if that's the best offer, you take that. Because I don't want to see another single year where Embiid's efforts are going to waste, where this dude's, you know, damn near been the best player in the league ever since Christmas. I think he's put himself in MVP MVP talk, uh, in, in the MVP race. And I think you just really need to get some assets for Ben Simmons. We've been hammering this point for so long, but with more tangible offers coming forward and the trade deadline about three weeks away, it's time for them to, you know, get in the groove and, you know, call every single GM, make a few calls because we know how stubborn Maury is. So, I mean, regarding trade talks, I think Tobias Harris could also be in that package. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I was just about to bring up that Detroit Pistons package because I personally, honestly, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that package is just like pretty good for just Ben Simmons. If you get Jeremy Grant, who can be your starting power forward alongside Joel Embiid, you get Sadiq Bey, who is a very solid guard who can play off your bench. You get Kelly Olynyk, who can come off the bench and he's a very solid screen setter, roller. He can dunk, he can play decent defense and you get a first round pick on top of that all for someone who's not doing anything for you. So as, as, a, as a 76ers fan, I think that the front office is being a little bit too stingy with Ben Simmons and his value. And I understand that he was your quote unquote franchise star and you don't want to give him away for anything. But at the end of the day, we've been hammering this point over and over that you need something back because Joel Embiid is playing like an MVP candidate, like Rohan just said, and you don't know where this team can go in the playoffs. You want to maximize the talent around him to make sure that you can get as far as possible, as as far as Joel Embiid can take you. But you, as a front office, want to do everything you can to support your star player. And that includes putting as many talent or talented role players around him. So if you can get a player like Jeremy Grant, who was an all-star either last year or two years ago, a young talent in Sadiq Bay and a first-round pick, Kelly Olynyk, you should be able to pull the trigger on a deal like that. Yeah, no, most certainly. But I think that something that's very interesting about Jeremy Grant is that um, I think he's definitely one of the more coveted guys right now in the trade market. Um, and what's very interesting to me is that apparently Grant has little interest in joining a team where he doesn't feature as the primary offensive option. Um, so obviously I feel like, you know, when you join a contender like the Sixers, of course, he's going to have to kind of put some of that, I guess, ego on court ego aside to kind of coexist with a guy like Joel Embiid. And I mean, I know that we're just literally like fantasizing and spitballing over here, but hypothetically, I think that if Jeremy Grant was a Sixer, this team has the ability to stop a team like the Bucks, I believe in a best of seven series, because the Bucks, their primary option is, of course, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and I don't blame them, you know, but it's kind of like you're going to force Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton to beat you because I just feel that the Sixers team could have great defense with Embiid and Grant in the paint trying to stop a guy like, you know, Giannis. And, of course, I think the only other team that would kind of give, you know, the Philadelphia 76ers a problem down the stretch would be the Nets probably, 
possibly the Bulls as well, because they have those shooters and they just can match up well against them. So I think that, yeah, of course, if you're Philly, like, you know, Yash, you, you said it best, you know, Ben Simmons is not doing anything for you. So might as well get something. It's because it's better than nothing at this point. And Rohan, based on what you were saying about Tobias Harris, the only team right now on the trade market that would probably absorb Harris's contract in, you know, a package that would include Simmons and Harris would probably be the Sacramento Kings. Um, that's the only team that's really come up more times than not. And De'Aaron Fox is probably going to be the centerpiece of that package. But once again, if Grant, Sadiq Bay, Kelly Olenek, and a first-round pick is not going to do it for Philly, you know, best believe that just De'Aaron Fox or a package mainly surrounded around him, probably not going to do it for Philly either. Especially if you throw in Tobias into that trade, imagine what the asking price for Daryl Morey would be. I think the salaries just don't match, honestly, for that. But I do think, obviously, the Kings are looking to ship De'Aaron. I think he's going to be gone by the trade deadline. Um, regarding Jeremy Grant, he cannot be a first option on any winning team. I just want to be brutally honest about that. You know, I was, like, a little bit shocked when he left the Nuggets right after the bubble. I get it. He wanted to get his money, get his bag. I respect that. But um, he had, like, a, he had a pretty good season last season. I don't want to say he was prolific or anything by any means. But this season with his injury, I just – think that it's kind of ridiculous that his ego is coming into play when he can be a valuable asset to a team like the Sixers down the stretch um, and he just cannot be the first option on a championship team I think maybe a second option even that is a little bit questionable but I'm actually rooting for this trade to go through because I think he'd be phenomenal on the Sixers if he wants to be the first offensive option I think he's exactly where he needs to be because who cares who cares less about winning than the Detroit Pistons <laughs> I mean that is true but I think that Detroit might also be willing to move him to because there is also buzz that apparent buzz apparently that Grant would want to sign an extension in the in the ballpark of four years for 112 million this offseason. So it's kind of like, you know, if Detroit wants to kind of keep keep their guys young, keep them cheap as well, like Kate Cunningham and stuff like that, on a cheaper contract, of course, you know, makes sense for Detroit to kind of possibly move him by the trade deadline with a lot of suitors out there. Um, but you know, the other team that, you know, want to get to, I guess we already touched upon them last week um, a bit. It's the Raptors, the Celtics and the Knicks and the Hawks. I'd say those teams are kind of in that clump over there. It's kind of like, why are they so low? And I mean, that's just the reality of it. The Hawks are the only team that look a little bit concerning right now. They're three and seven, in their last 10. However, the Celtics and the Raptors are both seven and three in their last 10. The Knicks just a game behind that six and four in their last 10. But I think that Let's do something a little bit different over here. If you have to pick one team of that bunch to kind of surge up to not a playing spot, but at least the eighth seed possibly and higher, who 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 would you take and why? Say the teams again. The Celtics, the Raptors, the Knicks, and the Hawks. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, I want to go first. I kind of uh, <laughs> I would that, that's a good question. I mean, I think the obvious answer would be the Celtics just because this is a league that's run with star power and they have two stars, superstars. And I know Rohan's answer might be the Raptors because of his favorite boy, Scotty Barnes. But, <laughs> and he's been playing pretty well. That that dunk was absolutely insane. But I think that if Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown can just figure out what they're doing as a duo, even if they don't get shipped out, which I don't think any, any of us think that they will, they should be a lot higher than they are. And I know we've, we've talked about this point last week and also a few times in other previous podcasts, but 
they are above 500 so it's just that the eastern conference is so dense this time around that a 500 team for once is actually way under the eight seed and they're very barely fighting for the plan but all that being said they have one of the easiest strength of schedules remaining in the league i think it's bottom five in the league so they have a they have the fifth easiest schedule so uh going forward so i think they should be able to surge up a little bit hopefully their goal as a team probably should be to avoid the play-in but i think they're going to end up right in that seven eight range so i i, I think that's going to be my answer the boston celtics uh, I think I'm going to take the Celtics too. You know, I'm not trying to like piggyback off of Yash, but I'm just looking at these other teams and I don't think that the Knicks, like they've been surging up this last week and a half, but I don't think it's sustainable. The Hawks I'm kind of concerned about because, you know, they did trade, uh, what's the name, Cam Reddish, right? And I think that mm-hmm. that team's just all out of sorts at this point. I think that John Collins might be moved at the deadline. I really think that's a big possibility, which would shake up the league. I think Clint Capella's had a pretty down year compared to what he was doing last season. They just haven't really gelled. I do think that the Hawks will still make the playoffs, but in a head-to-head in a series, I think I would still take the Celtics, despite what I've been saying about them and how this Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you know, kind of duo isn't working. But as an eight seed, I'll take the Celtics. All right, fair enough. Honestly, I was going to go with the Celtics too, but just just to be a little bit different, I'll, I'll take the Knicks. I'll take the Knicks because I think that, you know, that Cam Reddish trade was definitely huge. And, of course, he's reunited with R.J. Barrett um, back from their Duke days. And so R.J.'s I think been that it was very, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's been, he's been doing great. And I think that things at the Knicks front office, they also contacted R.J. before making the deal for Cam Reddish. So they were already eyeing Cam Reddish, but they were like, hey, you know, like we're thinking about getting him. So, like, they're obviously valuing the team's opinion, especially R.J. Barrett, who has been, I feel like, I don't want to say a face of the franchise because, you know, I don't want to jinx that for the Knicks at all because it's kind of like everyone's kind of up and down in that franchise. Like last year was Julius Randle was doing great. This year, Julius Randle's kind of, you know, not doesn't have the best plus or minus. So basically at this point in time, like I think that RJ Barrett is, you know, kind of like the forefront guy for the Knicks. And, you know, this team has beat the Celtics more times than not down the stretch, which is why I feel that they'll kind of overtake them. And, I just feel like the Raptors are too good to be true now. And I'm not trying to sound like a hater because like, I know like Fred Van Vliet is just going absolutely crazy right now. Um, you know, especially from beyond the arc too. He's arguably, you can, you can make the, you can make the argument that Fred Van Vliet could be in discussion for like most improved player of the year, um, which is pretty crazy to think about, but I just feel like the Raptors are way too good to be true. And they should crumble down the stretch, possibly having a shot at the plan, but they'll definitely be on the back end. Um, of things in the Eastern Conference. But, you know, moving on to the Western Conference now, I guess that's where most of our substance for this podcast is, you know, the Golden State Warriors are no longer the number one seed um, in the West. And that's kind of weird to say because they've kind of been up there for as long as we can kind of remember since the season started for the most part. Um, And now the Suns are on a four-game win streak. They are eight and two in their last 10, whereas the Warriors are four and six in their last 10. You have the Grizzlies moving up to the third spot, nine and one in their last 10. They had a, I believe it was a 11 game win streak that was snapped by the Mavs um, just this past week, thanks to a Luka Doncic triple double. And then you have the Jazz and the Mavs following at four and five, then the Nuggets, the Lakers, and the Clippers going down to the eighth seed, respectively. So that's the rundown of the West. Draymond Green is out for two weeks in Golden State. Or is he going to have a similar effect like how Kevin Durant does on the Nets in terms of, you know, plummeting down? 
or you know what's that kind of going to be like because could we see the Grizzlies and the Jazz kind of overtake the Warriors at the two and could Golden State drop to possibly the four spot I think that's a very real possibility at this point just because I, th- I think people in the league are going to notice how important Draymond Green is to the Warriors. I think I've said this previously, but Draymond Green is as important to the Warriors on defense as Steph is important to the Warriors on offense, just because of the things he does defensively. He tells people where to rotate, everything he does on that end, and then the playmaking skills he has on the offensive side. He is the number two to Steph, and you can argue Clay as good as he is, Andrew Wiggins, Jordan Poole, all of them. The Warriors are not the Warriors without Draymond Green. You saw that against the Bucks when they got throttled by what? Was it 40 points at one point? I know the final score was 19. It didn't look as bad, but let's be honest, the game was a lot worse than that. Uh, they just lost They lost in blowout fashion in the Minnesota Timberwolves. Steph didn't play, but still, Dr- you could see the absence of Draymond Green in that in that roster and for the next two weeks we're gonna see how clay thompson assimilates back in the warriors but he's still not gonna have his old best friend draymond green to play with and he's been on post-game interviews or even a pre-game interview i think on tnt and he said that without draymond that's why we've seen clay thompson do a lot of dribbling just because of what draymond brings to the warriors that facilitation so that clay thompson and steph curry can play off ball that catch and shoot which is just so much easier for both of those guards and his importance is so damn important to the Warriors that I think we will see a little bit of regression and we already have, but I'm not that worried because when he does come back, the Warriors are going to get really hot because the team's just been slumping. Steph Curry's been slumping that eventually the law of averages will kick in towards playoff time. And that's exactly when you want a team to get hot. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, so I think that, uh, the Warriors for sure are going to start falling behind because I think people, like Josh said, people don't realize, I think around the league, it's not really fully, you know, Draymond doesn't get that full respect and people are going to start realizing how valuable he is to this team because they've already lost five of their last seven. Right. And uh, the last in, in those seven games, they've ranked 29th offensively over that stretch. Warriors That's scored only 96 points per hundred possessions over the other six games. But I think that obviously his defense is going to be missed by, you know, the, the team right now. But the problem is, I think down the stretch, like, like Yasha was saying, Clay is kind of having trouble uh, playmaking for himself and the rest of the team. He's seven for 19 in the paint. And, you know, Draymond's kind of been that point forward guy where, you know, he can distribute the ball to, you know, you know Steph, Clay, all the other shooters. And they're going to miss them both on the defensive side, but obviously, right. But in the offensive side as well. So Curry really needs to step up his game because he's been shooting 34% over the last two weeks. But in all honesty, He's been slumping for over a month, which is the longest I've seen. I said this on the last podcast, so we'll see if he can bounce back this week, especially without Draymond. Uh, they have had a pretty tough road schedule the last couple of weeks, but now only they have a seven-game homestand, and their next 11 games, they only have three games of teams over 500. So this is the perfect chance for them to bounce back, even without Draymond. I just hope the injury isn't more serious than what it is right now. Obviously, they thought it was a calf string, but now they're saying it's a back disc problem. So hopefully this doesn't linger longer than the end of January and hopefully they can regroup as a full squad starting February. But this next week is going to be crucial to see if they can bounce back. No, most certainly. And wait, I think Sean, that before, wait, yeah. Sean, Sean, mm-hmm. before you go, Rohan, I want to ask you a question. So, and when that James Wiseman news that they actually had surgery for, for James Wiseman in December and they didn't tell anyone until now, does that make you as a Warriors fan kind of distrust management with their injury concerns? Because 
I, I did trust their uh, doctors, their team doctors before that James Wiseman news. Now I'm a little bit skeptical, especially for this um, Draymond Green injury. Yeah, I think that whole knee surgery thing was kind of weird how they hid it from the team and, and I'm sorry, not hid it from the public. And kind of even when the news came out, they kind of shoved it off as, you know, kind of a routine surgery, but it's really not. It's another setback. And I don't think we see James Wiseman um, before the all-star break in all honesty. And I think that by the time he comes back and rejoins the team, March, April, it's going to start being playoff time. So I'm kind of, you know, I don't want to say this, but I think this year is another lost year for Wiseman. And it's kind of disappointing because I do think that Warriors doctors maybe handled his recovery a little loosely. People thought he would be back by Thanksgiving, which obviously wasn't going to happen with the whole meniscus situation. So it's not that I don't, you know, distrust them more, but I think that they handled it poorly. And I think that's just very disappointing for a player who needs as many minutes as he can, because we know his rookie year last season, he just wasn't that player that people, you know, made him out to be in the draft. So I think that's just disappointing. Um, and I think that's, that, I don't know if it's going to hurt the team win-wise, but it's definitely going to hurt his development. So it's definitely, you know, not okay for the Warriors management and the doctors kind of to hide it from the public, which I thought is weird, definitely. Yeah, well, at least you guys have Jonathan Kuminga. He's like pretty great um, off late. I'm not going to lie to you on that. But, you know, one thing that I did want to talk about in regards to Golden State is that um, I feel the return of Clay Thompson has... I'm not going to say ruin this team. Don't get me wrong, because absolutely by no means is that true. I want to say something more of like, I think he's weirdly disrupted the chemistry. And I know he doesn't mean to, but I think it's because it's like, hey, Clay's back. It's like, you know, are they feeding him the ball more? Are they changing their approach to games a little bit? And of course, you know, you you just talked about how Stephen Curry has really not looked the same off late. So I feel that, there's a lot kind of going on in golden state right now where it's just, I think that there's a lot of like, you know, emotional standpoint too, to be like, Hey, and this pressure as well to be like, Hey, like, you know, we got our team. Like we were the number one seed. Everyone's been writing the narrative that we're going to win the championship. Now all of a sudden you start plummeting. They're like, Oh, you know, you know how the media is, you know, they're going to be like, Oh wow. The warriors dropped one seed. Oh my God, this is the end. That's, that's what that's what the public's going to say. But I, I know you guys as fans obviously don't think that. But one thing that I do want to share to all the listeners right now on the podcast is that I don't think Golden State cares at all if they start losing games over here down the stretch. And the reason why is because Stephen Curry has literally told Clay Thompson this, and this is a direct quote. He said, I've let him know there's no pressure. He knows April, May, and June is what it's all about, and I can't wait to see it. So this team knows what they need to do and – given the fact that they've been to the finals just so many times and just the veteran playoff experience that this team has, they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. And I think that down the stretch, that, that's when it matters the most. Like, you know, how Yash was going to talk about the Nets before. That's obviously a complete different story. But once again, if the Nets start pummeling, that's fine. All that matters is that you start clicking at the right time, start clicking in the postseason, then what are what are other teams going to do? Because we've already seen what the Warriors have done to the Suns, we've seen what they can do. I know the Grizzlies did beat them, but – We've seen what they can do, you know, when push comes to shove down the stretch. So especially with Draymond Green back too. So I'm really not going to be too concerned about Golden State just yet if other fans want to hit the, hit the panic button. But um, one team that I do want to get to down this list is the Dallas Mavericks. So Dallas, of course, we spoke about them earlier. They did snap the Grizzlies 11 game win streak, which was the best in the NBA at the time. Um and they are 25 and 19. They're fifth in the Western Conference. They have won nine of their last 10 games. And 
my kind of question is, can we see the Mavs kind of surge up a tad bit? Kind of how we saw the Grizzlies surge, because I believe that they do have the fourth best defense right now in the NBA, at least since Luca's returned to the lineup um, off late. So I kind of want to say, could we see the Mavs kind of surge up, you know, to take over the Jazz down the stretch? Because I know there's a huge, huge drop off between the top four seeds and then that fifth spot. But I'm just kind of like fantasizing over right here because once again, fifth and the sixth spot, then there's a little bit of a drop off over there too. So the West is kind of dividing these sections, but I feel like the Mavs are in their own little gray area where it's like, Hey, you can kind of go up, but you have the cushion to lose games and still stay at five. I want to say no, because they've been pretty hot, but like you just said, they're still significantly behind the jazz. I think they're what five games they're four games back of the four seed and something that I want to bring up that somehow I just don't see being talked about as much in the media this season is Luca as great as he's been he's shooting 28% from three which is we are well into January now past the halfway point and he's still shooting 28% from three and that is extremely worrying to me because we know how good Luca can be if he's on his game but like when those step backs aren't going in and he's still shooting eight threes a game it hurts their offense which I think two seasons ago was one of the best offenses in NBA history so a lot of it has to do with Luka Doncic, Doncic, and if he can get that like kind of rolling again and get back to the old Luka, it's, it feels weird to say old Luka when he's in his fourth, third or fourth year in the NBA, but if he can get back to what he used to be just a few years ago, then I think they maybe have a chance to surge up, but I still do think that they're going to be stuck in that kind of section of the West in the fifth, fifth I agree. I think that in order for this team to be a true contender, they really need to make a move at the deadline. Obviously, the biggest piece for them right is Kristaps Porzingis I don't know if they're going to move him just because there's been very conflicting reports about whether they're going to move KP down the stretch um like Yash said Luca's been terrible from three he even said that after his you know I think he had back-to-back triple doubles something like that uh last week and they were saying you know how does it feel this and that he's like I think I, it feels like I needed to shoot better you know, which is definitely true. He shot nine for 47 from three-pointers since returning from his ankle injury um, at the beginning of January. So though he was injured before that, since he's returned, he's been abysmal from three. And this is not like a new problem for Luka. We've known this for a while that he's just been that kind of shooter. And it's just, I don't know if it's concerning that your franchise player can't hit these threes at a high clip because we know what he can do. He's a special player, but I just don't know if he's as efficient as the team needs him to be. And I think Maybe they're still too young and still a couple pieces away for them to really be a true championship contender. We'll see after the trade deadline if they make those moves. But right now, Sean, I, I just want to say no. I think they're just kind of in that middle area, like you said. No, that's fair enough. And I, I think that they're not going to move Chris Asperzingis like whatsoever because I feel like the Mavs, if anything, they look like the team that should go out there and make a move for someone instead of getting rid of people um, at this point in time. And one person to keep in you know, in mind over there when talking about the Mavs is Miles Turner. They were one of the first teams that actually showed interest in Miles Turner, but all of a sudden they've now backed out of that. I don't want to say it's because Miles Turner is injured and he's going to be out for two weeks because apparently they kind of lost interest before that report ever came out. So maybe that's something to keep an eye on. I don't know who else the Mavs would kind of go out and get. So yeah, I'm fine with keeping them at five, but the reason that I was kind of getting to that is because the Utah Jazz at four even though, yes, they're a great team. Without Rudy Gobert, this team is one and four. 
and they're ranked 30th in defensive rating in those five games. So I feel that Rudy Gobert is like the heart and soul of this team. And without in those games, that if in case, you know, he gets, gets hurt, lands in health and safety protocols, whatever it is, you know, in those games without Rudy Gobert, that's where the Jazz, are, that's literally their weakest point. You know, it's their Achilles heel, you could say that, you know, without him, they really just don't know how to play defense uh, in this league. And they are 27 and 11 with Gobert in the starting lineup and I guess active on the day of the game. But, you know, one other thing that I want to get to over here is the Lakers. You know, the Lakers, they hadn't beat a team above 0.500 in nearly a month until last night when they beat the Utah Jazz. And something to keep in, keep in mind over there is that they played LeBron James at center for the entire fourth quarter against Gobert. And the Lakers had a 13-0 run. And they outscored the Jazz 29-17 to in the quarter to ultimately win the game. So there, there are two things over here. It's kind of like, all right, could we see the Jazz kind of fall down a tad bit? Maybe not as low as the fifth spot. Keep them at four, but just they lose a couple of games. But is there something with the Lakers over here that, oh, is this the turning point in the season? And I'm going to say this right now. I don't think it is because it's like we've not seen any consistency out of this team. I'm just going to say like the narrative for LA is just cautiously optimistic. If you want to say that, you know, given the fact that this team doesn't have Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook is still kind of playing carelessly. Sure. Everyone's going to be talking about that poster dunk that he had on Gobert. And that's going to be like a highlight reel. You're going to see it for the Lakers season at the end of the year, but it doesn't discount the fact that this team is literally dead at 0.500, 22 and 22 right now. And it's kind of like, okay, you can go either way. So what do you do you guys think that this is a turning point in the Lakers season? And if so, why? I it's really hard to say, but I want to say no, just because this has been the story of the Lakers the entire season. They've been up and down and up and down. They go on a three-game losing streak and then they win a few. And then they just hover around five hundred for the entire season, it feels like. Yeah. Um, so just to go back to what you're saying about the jazz. I think that there's serious concerns about chemistry issues there, um, you know, com- completely unrelated to their play. I think, honestly, you know, I know you post on the fan list, like I think about a week ago, maybe a little less a week, Donovan Mitchell does have interest in both, you know, Miami and what was the other team? New York, I believe, New York Knicks. Yeah, New York, and respectively in that order too, which is very right. interesting. Right, um, and I think that's just very concerning because he's, you know, still under contract kind of. And uh, at this point, I've seen him play with Rudy Gobert a couple of times because I do love Donovan Mitchell. And they've had a lack of chem- chemistry this last week. They've just been out of sync. I've seen situations where Gobert is literally calling for the ball last night um, with LeBron on him. And it's to that point where Donovan Mitchell was just going ISO and not even, you know, calling for Luke Gobert to uh, bring up the screen, you know, maybe do a little pick and roll. It's just come to that point where I don't know if this uh, duo of Gobert and Mitchell can last. Uh, though that they, you know, they have a 29-14 record, they have the best offensive rating in the league. You would think that, you know, it's all, you know, roses and rainbows for this team. But I'm concerned because, like you said, without Gobert, they're very timid on defense. And I think that uh, it's going to be concerning down the stretch because if it doesn't work out this year, I think there's real concerns for Donovan Mitchell to leave Utah. Obviously, that's a conversation for another day, but I think it's just, no, it's just noteworthy because I've been watching them and it just seems like there's no chemistry on the floor. Regarding the Lakers, I think that, you know, I was on record, I think either last podcast or a couple podcasts ago saying that LeBron at center is not going to work out because I don't think he can play that many minutes at center consistently, you know, being a 37 year old. 
And I, you know, his center, his, uh, you know, position at center worked for a lot of teams who were below 500 and, you know, just were terrible. But until last night where, like you said, they went on a 13-0 run with him playing center against Gobert, you know, obviously one of the best defensive centers in the league. So I still don't know if this is a viable situation for them going forward. Can they continue to play this? You know, it depends on when AD comes back. How does he look in that lineup? So I don't want to say that it's a turning point at all. I'll say this. I think the turning point for the team is going to be the trade deadline because the, the trade deadline is going to be very crucial for this team because they're just right in that middle of the pack, like I said, dead at 500. And they're just so inconsistent that I can't trust them to see until the pieces that they make at the trade deadline, if they can get someone viable for them and maybe propel them to a, a strong playoff push. Until then, I can't say anything about this team. So I'll, I'll check back in about three weeks about the Lakers because until then, they haven't showed any consistency. So what Rohan was talking about when it comes to the Jazz, I think I fully agree with it. Like yesterday, I don't think it was Rudy Gobert's fault in the fourth quarter that they didn't score. It was actually he had so many post-ups that the Jazz couldn't felt fed him the ball but Donovan Mitchell just didn't want to pass for some reason I think that it's time the onus on Donovan Mitchell for fully deliver when it matters the most I know they're a very solid team and it, it doesn't feel like that we should be talking about a player that has been like the number one seed in the NBA and they're still almost at 700 win percentage but still against the Lakers when they should have won that game quite easily. He was just willing to go isolation, even though he saw Rudy Gobert what had a post-up. He had a seal on someone like LeBron, shorter than him, should have fed him the ball and should have got an easy dunk or two free throws, but they didn't. And that led to the Lakers run and eventually the Lakers win. And I think that's a big problem that the Jazz have to solve, get Rudy Gobert involved. Like Sean said, that when Rudy Gobert is not on the floor, they're a pretty abysmal team. So when he's on the floor, they, they have to be able to capitalize on that. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, the Jazz success, weirdly, um, it depends on Rudy Gobert, I guess, being available and just being, I guess, the defensive player of the year candidate that he's always been um, his entire career. Um, but, you know, down the stretch, you know, I feel like, you know, I want to say the Suns, the Warriors, the Grizzlies, the Jazz, those four should not be changing anytime in the next week in terms of, you know, who the top four teams are. And I think that once the season ends, we're going to see those four teams at the top of the Western Conference. Potentially, maybe if the Nuggets and the Mavs kind of turn their season around. But again, Denver's not looked too great off late. Um, and it's worth noting that, of course, the L.A. Clippers, Paul George is going to be out for an extended amount of time initially from that three to four week period that he was supposed to be out. And Kawhi Leonard, we really don't have an update on him, but it's more of like, hey, you know, he should hopefully be back down the stretch um, when this team does head into the postseason. But other than that, I mean, that's basically the rundown that we have this week for the Eastern and Western Conference. Um, any closing thoughts from you guys? I mean, it's just kind of that weird point of the season, you know, middle of January where I, I was saying this off camera, it's just kind of lethargic basketball because they're not meaningful games but at the same time everyone watches them still um because you know you want to see how the power rankings develop but it's just kind of that weird point of season where the casual fan is going to lose interest but hopefully you know these podcasts keep you around yeah well i mean i i guess you've kind of like said whatever you need to say on that in regards to that for the most part um at this point in time i feel like a lot of teams probably adopt taking load management a tad bit more so than not um, so that's something to keep an eye on down the stretch, but I guess that that's all that we got for you guys today. Stay tuned for more at the panelist dot pod. 
um, Sham Ramachandran signing off with Rohan Rajan and Yash Joshi. <laughs>